Well, good morning. It's uh, great to be together. If you have a Bible, please turn it over to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Uh, as Bob said, my name is uh, Jake Ostrowski. If I look remotely familiar, it's probably because you know my parents. Uh, I, I am the eldest of Ken and Judy Ostrowski, who love this church and have loved spending time up here. I even appreciate a brief conversation with Pat a second ago asking about my dad's job situation. Um, so it's just been an honor to be able to be here this weekend. You live in one of the prettiest cities I have ever yeah, been in. Uh, I hope you realize that. If not, I'd like to remind you that you live in one of the prettiest cities. That drive down Main Street when you're heading down and all you see is the lake and the mountains and old world beauty. It is perfect. You have some of the nicest fraternity houses I've ever seen in my entire life, which is a miracle because they are fraternity houses, but they look uh, beautiful. Uh, and this is some of the best people I've been around. It was just been so encouraging uh, Friday night to be able to spend time with the campus ministry, to be able to have a parenting devotional last night. Uh, and most of all, just to get to spend time with Mike and Kristen. Um, Bethany and I are kind of, we have often looked for peer friendships in the ministry and, and often not found them. Because uh, we have been five years younger or five years older than most of the other folks who we've served with along the way. But to have great peers, to have people who are uh, along us in this stage in life, uh, getting to lead small churches which we absolutely love and love getting to be a part of it. And then just people you like spending time with. People you enjoy going to get a, a craft beer and playing pay, uh, pinball with is like a great thing. So they are a treasure and they love you guys and they love love the area and they love the church and uh, I hope you know that and I hope you know what a treasure you have in Mike and Kristen. For our time this morning, we're going to be studying Acts chapter 17 verses 16 through 21. Uh, If you have an electronic Bible, and some of you do, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. So if it sounds a little bit different than what you have, that's why. The title of our message this morning is A New Motivation for Mission. A New Motivation for Mission. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we believe we have both the joy and also the responsibility to participate with Jesus and the ongoing work and mission of disciple making. If we're going to continue forward with joy in our God-given mission, rather than treating evangelism simply as an often burden and pressure-filled obligation, we will need to frequently mind our motivation. The truth is that not only mission, but the whole Christian life will begin to feel as a burden without a strong dose of biblical motivation. My goal, and our time together this morning, is to inspire us. My goal is to encourage us to look at an often neglected motivation, but one that is vital, one that is vital for our ongoing engagement in the Great Commission. I hope that by considering this motivation, that we may look at the Great Commission in a new exciting and profound way. And that we can engage in it with more urgency and passion 
than we ever have before. And how I want to do this is by examining an encounter from the life of the Apostle Paul. Here in Acts chapter 17, we find our hero, the Apostle Paul, in the midst of his second missionary journey. He'd been forced out of fruitful work in Berea by Thessalonian Jews who were pursuing him in an attempt to discredit his message and stop his mission. He traveled to the great and important city of Athens alone while he waited for Timothy and Silas, his traveling companions, to join him so that they could continue their missionary work together. So we pick up our story here in Acts chapter 17, and I'm going to read verses 16 through 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our, to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Let's pray. God, uh... I'm so grateful to be here in Burlington with uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's just been such an encouraging weekend and time together to uh, meet new people, build new relationships, strengthen existing relationships, enjoy your beauty, spend time with family, spend time with my family. Thank you. Thank you for what a grace this weekend has been for us. But God, we really want to focus in here this morning on this passage of Scripture and think and consider the Apostle Paul and as he entered the great city of Athens, what drove and motivated him to be about this mission that Jesus had commissioned him to. Father, we want to be about what you have called us to and we know that those things are only sustainable if we are motivated from a biblical place. And I just really do pray that we can enjoy being together, that we can enjoy the study of this scripture, that we can enjoy and feel inspired by what you would teach us through through Paul's experience here in Athens. God, help me to preach well. Thank you for the opportunity to do what I love, to explain the Bible to people. And I pray that I can do so passionately, clearly, inspirationally, as I ought do, because you are worthy of those things. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, Bethany and I and our boys love living in New Hampshire. We love the food. Yeah. Amen. That's most important about any place you're going to live. We love the people. We love being so close to both the beach and the mountains. I grew up seeing my grandparents twice a year. My boys get to see my parents twice a month. We love the church. We feel honored to be able to serve the Granite State Church that we're a part of. It's been perfect for us, except for one thing. No good coffee shop. 
I believe that a man is allowed to be an elitist about a few things in life, so he should choose what that is very, very carefully. I have chosen to throw my lot in with a hot, delicious, pick-you-up-when-you're-feeling-blue kind of cup of coffee in the morning. A simple Dunkin' iced coffee will not suffice. Unless the man who made my morning brew spent more time fixing his mustache that morning than my wife did fixing her hair, I will question the quality of his work. And that type of coffee shop was missing from the New Hampshire seacoast. Until, by the grace of Almighty God, flight opened up. Flight is the most perfect little coffee shop. It is pretentious in all the right ways. I walked in and looked, and it looked like a hipster paradise, complete with the weathered wood, extravagant light fixtures, and exposed brick that all postmodern cool people love and need to experience. My barista is wearing her brand new pair of Warby Parker eyeglasses that she may or may not actually need to see. She speaks of the Kenyan, unwashed mountain coffee and its notes of fresh blueberry and rich mahogany with the care and affection of a mother speaking of her newborn baby. She handmakes my individual cup with surgical precision. Weighing every ingredient down to the gram, it gives it to me in the perfect 1950s era coffee mug that keeps it warm long past what the laws of nature should allow. I find my way back to my seat, slowly sipping the perfect cup of coffee, nodding my head as ain't nothing but a G thing plays on the 90s era hip-hop Pandora station on the house stereo. If you don't know that, I'm sorry, but it's awesome. As I tasted the perfect blend of blueberry and mahogany, a brief thought ran through my mind. I cannot believe that God allowed this small piece of heaven to come to earth. I wonder if he misses it. So, when my wife, my beautiful sainted wife of almost nine years, returned from her first trip to flight, I was expecting her to have the same reaction that I did. Utter jubilation. I hear our car pull up to the back of the house and I wait by the door with a giant grin on my face, barely able to contain my excitement. She walks through the door and before we even say hello, I blurt out, So, what did you think? It's amazing, isn't it? Wasn't it the best cup of coffee you've ever had? And then, to my horror, she replies, It's okay. I think I like the coffee we make at home better. I was pierced through the heart. Only the revelation that she was in fact a Yankee stand would have been a bigger betrayal to me. Because when you are in awe of something, when you find it so incredible and irresistible, when you can't keep its greatness to yourself, it's your heart's desire for everyone to be in awe of it as well. And it hurts you and pains you and provokes you when others don't admire it as you do. 
Or even worse, when they dismiss it as ordinary, worthless, or irrelevant. The Apostle Paul was nothing if not completely and utterly in awe of his God. As you read through his letters, what continues to come to the surface is a sense of wonder, a fascination, of reverence, amazement, and admiration that he held for Yahweh and his son Jesus. His heart and passion for the Lord bleeds through the pages of the Bible as we read his words to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and 16, when he says, Jesus who is the only blessed and sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Or to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, when he says, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Or His passionate teaching on Christian adoption in Romans 8 verses 14 through 17. When He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Or when Paul says to his brothers and sisters in Rome, in Romans chapter 11, verses 36, or 33 through 36, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Or who has given to Him a gift that He might be repaid? For from Him... And through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul wholeheartedly worshipped his God. And in his mind and heart, who else would be worthy of such passionate devotion other than God? Who else should be worshipped other than God? So when Paul entered Athens, the scripture tells us his spirit was what? Provoked. Troubled, distressed at what he saw. And what he saw that so disturbed him was not rampant immorality. Immorality that undoubtedly would have been present in Athens at that time and present very publicly. What disturbed Paul was rampant idolatry. The God of the Bible alone. The God of the Bible alone was worthy of the devotion and worship. The people of Athens were giving the statues of gold and silver and stone. Jesus deserved it and no one and nothing else did. And so when Paul saw the city's devotion to idols, it made it so he could not keep himself from reasoning and pleading with the people of this city about Jesus. Armed with his passion for the glory of God, 
Paul daily went into the synagogues and into the marketplaces preaching of Jesus and his resurrection. It earned him an invitation to the Areopagus where the best and brightest of Athenian philosophers met to discuss the latest ideas. Some laughed at his claims of a risen Christ, but Paul's passion for the glory and worship of God bore fruit. And someday, when by God's grace... We step into the new Jerusalem. We will meet Dionysus and Demarius, our brother and sister, who worshipped the Lord as a result of Paul's impassioned, provoked preaching. I am called to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Is how Paul described his mission in Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Brothers and sisters, you do live in an amazing place. Burlington is beautiful. And I hope you feel a great sense of gratitude that God has allowed you to call Vermont home. But one of the realities you face with living in Burlington is that statistically, and I'm sure experientially as well, it is one of the least Christian parts of the country. The Barna Group, and Barna does Christian research, one of the largest Christian research firms in the United States, comes out with a yearly survey of the most churchless metropolitan areas and the least Bible-minded metropolitan areas. Last year, the Burlington metropolitan area was ranked the second most churchless and the 11th least Bible-minded in the country. It's a, all right, yeah, all right. Good work, Burlington Church of Christ. One spot at a time. I don't think that's a surprise to any of you who live here, though. Daily, you encounter broken-down church buildings and open hostility to God, Jesus, the Bible, and his church. In a Gallup poll measuring the religiouslessness of each state, Vermont was voted, or was rated as the least religious state in the United States. Just ahead of New Hampshire and Maine. We actually, I live in the second least religious state in the United States, according to this poll. Now, while I totally agree that it seems that Vermont is a Christless state, I would take issue with the idea that Vermont is a religiousless state. It may not be very Christian, but you do live in a very religious place. It is said of ancient Athens that it is easier to meet a man, a god than a man. There are not more gods than men here in Burlington, but every man has his own god. You are surrounded by idols, surrounded by idols. Each and every time you leave your homes, go to your jobs, or walk your kids to school. Vermonters, they worship the idol of freedom. And hold it as their highest virtue. Vermonters worship Hetty Topper and sacrifice their time and money for a chance at two overpriced four packs. For Vermonters, that's just, that one was slow, but think about it. We'll get back to you. Thank you. That was for you guys. Just trying to contextualize what I've noticed here in Vermont. Vermonters worship the idol of politics. And believe that Senator Sanders is more likely to fix the problems in our country and world than King Jesus. Vermonters worship the idol of fun and hobbies. Vermonters worship the natural beauty of the creation 
rather than the Creator who has placed every tree and every star in its place and knows it by name. Vermonters worship the idol of sex. Vermonters worship the idol of cool. Vermonters worship the idol of false Christianity which gives them a peace of mind but not peace with God. Vermonters worship the idol of self and make any and every sacrifice necessary to bring themselves pleasure. Brothers and sisters, you are surrounded by idols. You are surrounded by religion. And maybe you've become so accustomed to it that you don't even really notice it anymore. Everywhere you turn, something is competing in the hearts of men and women, your friends and co-workers, for the honor and glory and worship that only God deserves. And I'm here to tell you this morning that your church is full of idols. And this should provoke your spirit to action. This should distress your hearts onto the mission field. Because you believe that God and God alone is worthy of people's worship, people's praise, people's joy, and people's glory. So make no mistake, if you're visiting this morning and you're not a Christian, my desire is that you worship the God of the Bible. I want to tell you that your spouse, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, your children, your job, your education, your political party, sex, money, possessions, the craft brew of the month, or whatever it is you are currently worshipping, is a terrible God. That is only leading you to despair. And I would implore you and plead with you, please set those things aside. Destroy those idols and worship God. Submit your will to God in worship, living for Him and His glory. Why would I do that, you may ask yourself. Well, in the words of J.I. Packard, life becomes an awesome business when you realize that you spend every moment of your life in the sight of the company of an omniscient, omnipresent creator. Make your life an awesome business. Make your life an awesome business by worshiping the only awesome with your entire life. I encourage you, ask the people who invited you today to teach you what it means to worship Jesus. God deserves your worship and it's about time you give it to him. If you sit here today and you are a disciple of Jesus, I would ask you to consider the comments on Romans chapter 1, verse 5 of the British theologian John Stott. Here's what he said. The highest of the missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, as important as it is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, especially when we are contemplating the wrath of God, but rather zeal. Burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus. We should be jealous for the honor of His name, troubled when it remains unknown, hurt when it is ignored, indignant when it is blasphemed, and all the time anxious and determined that it shall be given the honor and glory which are due it. I would ask you this morning, does that describe your passion and affections? Are you zealous for God's glory? Are you jealous for His honor? Are you troubled, hurt, or indignant when God is unknown, ignored, or blasphemed? 
Does your desire for your God to be honored and glorified make you, make you anxious and determined that He will be given the honor and glory that are due Him? Does that describe you? Maybe the reason that you're not distressed is because you're, you have the same idols as everyone else. And maybe you've found a way to give them a nice Christian spin, a nice Christian masking, but they're the same idols as your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers. Maybe you've been so busy doing godly things that you no longer take the time to admire God. And slowly your heart has grown cold and dull to Him. Maybe you've lost some of your capacity for awe. As your times in prayer and Bible study have been chipped away by the hecticness of life and the distraction of modern technology. One of the best decisions my family made recently was to limit the amount of modern technology we let into our house. I'm reading a book that was um, written in the mid-1980s called Amused to Death. And it's basically about the, the, how television was having a drastically terrible effect on culture and that people were constantly focused on being entertained. This was written in the mid-1980s about, tech, about television. How much more true is it today than it was in the 1980s? What do we have now? Cell phones. We have, I have more TV channels. Who needs a thousand television channels? <laughs> Can we be honest about that for a second? Like, I don't need Home and Garden TV 4. Like, the first three covered every problem I already had. Right? ESPN ate the Ocho. Do not need it. Keep it away. Our cell phones. And the endless number of apps that are coming out every single day. Um, Listen, I love my iPhone. I have an iWatch. I use a Mac. No judgment on those things. But man, do we really need to be at our phones that much? I found that the more time I spent in my phone, the more frustrated I was with my kids. Because they were an obstacle to my relaxation. I found that I was less helpful around the house because cleaning up the dishes was an obstacle to my enjoyment of that night's game. I found I lost capacity to awe at God because everything was bombarding my head every day and I had little thought left for God. May I encourage us? Try shutting the TV off for a week and see if it doesn't change your life. Don't have to destroy it. If you want to, that'd be kind of cool. Please send me some pictures. Um, Try shutting off for a week and see if it doesn't change your capacity to love, appreciate, and be in awe of God. Maybe you've just gotten into the mode where you endure God more than you enjoy God. Maybe you've just gotten into the mode where being a Christian is more of a test of your willpower than the greatest affections of your heart. One of the most dishonoring things we could ever do is give off the impression that God in the Christian life is to be endured and not enjoyed. One of the most dishonoring things we could ever do to God is give off the impression that the Christian life is to be endured instead of enjoyed. Are there challenging things? Absolutely. We got to deal with Amani last night and count costs. 
Count costs. Be real about this is not always going to be easy. There will be suffering and hardship. That's life though. That's not just the Christian life. Life can be challenging. That's not just the Christian life. Oh my gosh, this week our accountant forgot to check a box on our tax returns and we had to give two-thirds of our tax return back. Let me tell you what's not fun. Writing a big check to the IRS. Not great. Right. It's better than the IRS coming after you. Get out of it. But man, life's not always fun. Life can be challenging. But what is the Christian life? It's the most joyful life. Yeah. Why? Because it's the life, the only life that grants us access to God in this life as we prepare to be with Him for eternity. Yeah. So who are we to say, God, you are not worthy of my joy? Who are we to say, God, you are not providing me with joy? God, you are not good enough to give me joy. Come follow me as I follow Christ. I mean, it's okay most of the time, I guess. Would you want your best friend or your worst enemy to have your joy? Do you want your best friend or your worst enemy to have your joy? The thing I've learned is that wanting God to be worshipped is both the motivation and the result of our efforts to help lost people be saved. Both the motivation and the result of trying to help lost people be saved. And there's a million different ways we can look at this. I'll I'll just tell you a brief story. I'm studying the Bible with my buddy Jason. Jason lives directly next door to my wife and I. Jason's in his early 40s, been around the block, dropped out of college, Coast Guard, uh, several different things, not married, never been married, recently lost his job. Uh, Just Sin has definitely done a number on this cat. And uh, we started talking, and I just started telling him about my relationship with my wife, and um, where we were before we got married and, and the idea that we didn't sleep together before we got married blew this guy's mind. He started calling us the fairy tale. Um, and, and I'm, okay, thanks man. I appreciate that. That's very encouraging. And, but then I, I, honestly, I really started to think about it. And I started to think of, would I be capable of that? Minus Jesus. Would I desire that minus Jesus? Because minus Jesus, I'm a selfish, selfish man. Why be devoted to one woman when you can have more than one? Why keep my hands off of you when you're willing to give me whatever I want for my pleasure? Why do those things? Who would I be without Jesus? Not capable of any of those things. It's amazing as he said it, it was one of the most humbling experiences in my life that I started to realize... I couldn't do that on my own. That's not a me thing. That's not who I would be minus Jesus. And you can't help but fall down on your knees as I saw my wife and I saw my kids that night. And I just had this great joy to God, it's only because of you that any of this is possible. And you worship. And you want other people to have that too. Brothers and sisters, God is supremely worthy of the worship of the men and women in Vermont. He's supremely worthy of it. And one of the motivations we need as we enter, or some of us re-enter into the mission, in this amazing place where God has put us, is the desire for God to be enjoyed 
for God to be savored, for Him to be admired, appreciated, and worshipped. Paul's distress led him into the synagogues and then into the marketplace, which gave him an invitation from Epic and Stoic philosophers, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, to the Areopagus where he tried to persuade them to worship God. Our distress, it should lead us into conversations. It should lead us to kitchen tables and coffee shops all around the Burlington area to open up scriptures, to give people a picture of the supremacy of the resurrected Christ, and finally to the baptistry as people declare Jesus is Lord. Being born again to a new life under God's grace, full of His Spirit and for His glory. God is worthy of the worship of every Vermonter. It should bother us when He doesn't get it, and it should move us to persuade and plead with them that He alone is worthy. As we leave this morning and prepare to go out on the mission for the glory of God, I want to invite you to daily pray three things. Daily pray three things. Number one, Father, may you increase my heart's capacity to be in awe of greatness, of your greatness and perfection, and to enjoy your presence in my life. Father, may you increase my heart's capacity to be in awe of your greatness and perfection, and to enjoy your presence in my life. Number two, Father, may my heart be provoked and grow distressed as I see the idolatry of those around me. And may that distress lead me to daily action. God, may my heart be provoked and grow distressed as I see the idolatry of those around me. And may that distress lead me to daily action. Number three, Father, for the sake of your name, which is often reviled, mistrusts, and ignored in our state. Use our church to bring people into a right relationship with you. Not for the growth of our church, but for the glory of God. Not for higher attendance, but for louder praise. Not for the name of the Burlington Church of Christ, but for the name of Jesus Christ. Father, for your sake, which is often reviled, mistrusted, and ignored in our state, use our church to bring many people into a right relationship with you. Not for the growth of our church, but for the glory of our God. Not for higher attendance, but for louder praise. Not for the name of the Burlington Church of Christ, but for the name of Jesus Christ. And may we all join with our brother Paul in passionately saying, I am called to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among every Vermonter. To His glory and honor we say, Amen. Let's pray. Um, Father, we, um, we confess that we often take advantage of You. We confess that we aren't often in awe of You. We confess that we often allow the distractions of this world, the trouble and hardship of life, and the idols of our own hearts to distract us and pull our worship away from you and to those things. And for that, God, we say and we beg forgiveness, knowing that you give it freely. And we pray, God, that as we go out into our city today, as we go into our workplaces, as we drop our kids off of school, as we go into our neighborhoods, that we may have a spirit that is provoked by all the idols we see around us. 
The idols of capitalism and commercialism, the idols of money, power, fame, the idols of politics, sex, drugs, and everything in between. And that God, our hearts may be provoked and say, God, the praise these people are giving these things, only you deserve. And may our hearts be provoked to walk across, to talk, to reason, to plead with people. Because what we believe and what we know is that Jesus alone is worthy of their worship. God, we thank you. You have saved us. We thank you that if we're not Christians yet, you will save us. But God, may we, as we look to you, at you, and before you, be amazed by you and share that amazement with everybody else we have the opportunity to come into contact with. May this new motivation sink deep into our hearts and never leave us because you alone are worthy. In the name of your Son we pray. Amen.